Hello and welcome to the Better Human Podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. And this podcast is all about human rights. Today I'm talking to Professor Francesca Klug and Jonathan Cooper. And both of them are OBEs and both for services to human rights. Can't think of two better people to talk about the history of the Human Rights Act for Human Rights Day 2019. So Professor Francesca Klug, OBE, is visiting professor at LSE Human Rights. She has a glittering career in human rights from 2001 to 2015. She was professorial research fellow at the LSE Centre for the Study of Human Rights, where she was also director of the Human Rights Futures Project. Before transferring to LSE, she was the senior research fellow at King's College Law School. She's an academic expert at Doughty Street Chambers, where I am as well. Um, She's been an an Equality and Human Rights Commissioner and Lead Commissioner. She got the OBE for Services to Human Rights in 2002, and she has written extensively on human rights, um, including Values for a Godless Age, which is an absolutely brilliant book. Jonathan Cooper is also a colleague of mine at Doughty Street Chambers, where he's a barrister specialising in human rights and public law. He's devised human rights training programs used around the world by judges, lawyers, and public authorities, including the UK's Foreign Office and Ministry of Justice. He edits several leading human rights texts, including Hullsbury's Rights and Freedoms and the European Human Rights Law Review. He was awarded an OBE for services to human rights, and both of today's guests are extremely knowledgeable about the topic we're going to discuss. Before we do, I should remind everybody that the Better Human podcast is very kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB Law undergraduate course taught in London. Applications are now open for next year's course. To learn more, please visit gold.ac.uk forward slash law. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, adam at betterhumanpodcast.com is my email address, or you can connect on Twitter. That's at behumanpodcast with the letter B. And if you find this podcast valuable and enjoy listening to it, please consider supporting via patreon.com forward slash better human. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. If you could give $3 a month, which is about £2 or £2 and a bit, then that would be extremely useful in making this podcast sustainable and ensuring that I can carry on interviewing these fascinating guests about interesting human rights subjects. So let's start before the Human Rights Act, or before it was even a glimmer in, in anybody's eye. What was the, what did the UK system of government look like? The, the awareness that there was something missing really came through the Thatcherite years, when the sense that Britain was, you know, the home of civil liberties, the dawn of the Magna Carta began here, that... You know, one thing you could be absolutely sure of was that, you know, freedom was in the air, started to look a bit tainted as a national identity because um, what people discovered was that if you had a government with a sufficient majority, there was nothing to stop it riding roughshod on what people thought were invincible, quote, civil liberties. And civil liberties was the terms of the day. Human rights was very much a foreign concept. Human rights was something foreigners lacked, and British people had civil liberties. Then you had this series of onslaughts from 
uh, the Thatcher government, which was a government that was elected, if you like, over and over again on a minority vote. Uh, and yet, you know, the, the right to be Iosoli, that you were British if you were born here, the right of silence was dented, um, bans on, on reading material like Spycatcher and programs like Zircon program. You know, one thing after another happened and it woke a certain, if you like, um, level of um, comprehension that went beyond lawyers it, um, but was a fairly elite um, appreciation of the fact that whereas in other jurisdictions around Europe and in the States, it was possible to at least hold a government to account when they overturned ancient, what appeared to be ancient principles or primary legislation. There was virtually nothing you could do here. Now, having said that, of course, the 70s was the era of judicial review, of the courts taking powers to themselves to challenge um policy to challenge in particular government executive action under the Wendensby principle. But it didn't get very far at all because you had to be virtually irrationally mad to have a decision overturned under the Wendensby principle. And it had no impact, of course, on the legislative changes that the Thatcher government was introducing. So the common law, the idea that, you know, you were free until there was legislation that stopped you doing things was a very, very abstract principle to most people. They wouldn't have had a clue. They had a sense, most human beings had a sense that they did have full rights and civil liberties in this country uh, until suddenly um, it became apparent that um, if the democratic system wasn't producing alternative governments with different programs, an executive was pretty free of, to do what it wished. And, of course, there was the miners' strike, there was the poll tax demonstrations, you know, quite resilient police responses, quite draconian actions, as well as legislation, all mounting up um, to a sense that there was something wrong. There was something wrong with our system. And I think that was the soil in which talk about a Bill of Rights became more than just a very, very... Um, minor, tiny, elite interest of very well-intended and very, very principled lawyers who'd been talking about this, you know, since the 70s. Uh, in fact, even earlier, you know, Scarman, Lord Leicester, um, various, you know, the Liberal Party had always championed the idea that Britain, there was something wrong with Britain because it didn't have a Bill of Rights, you know, Politicians like Roy Jenkins, Shirley Williams, they they all, you know, in the 70s and had never let go of this idea that the British Constitution had a deficit in it. But I don't think it began to dawn on anybody what that meant beyond that tiny rarefied circle until late into the Thatcher project. What would you say, Jonathan? Um, no, I, I definitely agree with everything that Francesca was saying there. I also think that, that sort of everyone had come of age and... Mm. There was that, that sort of idea of deference was over, and um, mm. and the idea that somehow the ruling classes we could rely on the ruling classes to get it right, whereas actually the ruling classes were increasingly getting it wrong, and people started to know to feel that they should be able to hold the provider of public services to account, um, you know, so that, that they should be able to challenge a decision that was affecting them. And you really couldn't, as Francesca said, even though notionally you might be able to. And probably if you were a prisoner being treated absolutely abysmally, you would be able to. But 
there was that growing recognition that actually deference was over and that we were a much more confident, assertive people, um, enjoying, many people enjoying um, the fact that we're becoming increasingly multicultural, um, many people really valuing and believing in, in full gender equality. And actually the system wasn't good enough to, to, to deliver on that. And this sort of Westminster model was good, but it wasn't doing enough, and we need we did need more. We did need better ways to to kind of you know have better accountability, better decision making, and be able to know that whoever you were, you would be able to challenge the quality of that decision making. Whether it's about a school exclusion, um, it doesn't really matter. Access to some sort of healthcare housing issue, and people would just they just they just wanted better better government or actually better governance rather than better government um so i think that was a lot of it as well in the background of the human rights i think the persecution of lgbt people though brought it into real very clear relief because these were real human beings and the thatcher government was intent on that ironically well it's not ironic because obviously they were a small group of well we were a small group of people that were particularly targeted and, and persecuted and, and so it sort of it heightened or highlighted um all that was wrong in the old system and gave people something to sort of aspire to in relation to you know, what 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 could be better a better quality of system with better quality decision making but there was also you know there was so much bad things that were happening that shouldn't have been happening whether you're you know Francesca's just mentioned the the the, the things around the minor strike mm. where you people sort of recognize that if there'd been a human rights agenda or in retrospect this is what we would call it we recognize that if there had been now a human rights agenda that whole situation would have been so much better handled you know everyone knew that northern ireland was was going wrong and one of the reasons why it was going wrong was there were no there were no effective human rights to to kind of manage the situation so everywhere you sort of turned unless you were lucky enough to be in that kind of idyllic thing where the world the world around you wasn't affecting you um there was this this kind of call or this thirst uh, for what we would now call the human rights culture. I mean, I think I think what happened as the Thatcher government developed as the years went on is that you started off with a lot of people feeling, oh, this was a very liberal, libertarian um, change from the 70s where you had, you know, strife. I mean, I personally really, I was young and I really enjoyed the 70s and I didn't see it like that at all. But that was the national discourse. Um, uh, that, you know, the 70s was one of disorder and strife. And then you had this sort of liberal libertarian government coming in. And as the 80s wore on, the authoritarian nature of that government actually was quite striking and shocking and pretty well unprecedented. The authoritarian and the austerity of Com that the government. Com the combination. Yeah. Well, the austerity led to more authoritarianism. Yeah, 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 so, for yeah. example, the famous poll tax, you know, people vaguely became aware. I remember being out there in the discourse that in America they were able to successfully actually challenge local poll taxes that have been introduced whereas here there was nothing to be done but to protest and when the protest happened they were defined as riots and then you had the public order legislation being enacted against the people who were defending themselves basically from penury 
And that, that was sort of something you associated with Dickensian England. So there was definitely a mood out there, not that people, you know, there was no calling on the street for a bill of rights, there was no French Revolution or American Revolution moment. But there was a, a, a change of mood, and then it took, you know, certain people to be able to, 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 to move that in a certain direction. It wasn't in any way inevitable the way it went. I do think, though, that Northern Ireland and the, the so-called Troubles, you know, at never was there a better British euphemism of understatement than calling what was happening in Northern Ireland the Troubles, was another context to this. I mean, you end, and, and, and the, the instinct of the government of the day to just ban everything, <laughs> you know. So, you know, the, the ban on mentioning the IRA and the complete absurdity of it and the sort of satire that, the, you know, not being, able to, not being able to hear Jerry Adams's voice. Exactly, exactly. And yeah. the satire that that was meant, met with, meant there was a culture wars that developed yeah. within, within the yeah. political uh, uh, And the whole race issue and there was that recognition that the race relations act and the sex discrimination act have been good and successful but actually you needed much much more and you also had the police and criminal evidence act. yeah i mean this That's was true. good yeah the, these were in the 80s legislation. wasn't a kind of you know, and the children's act of course the children's binary. Act was very yeah. aggressive actually yeah uh, um, mm. uh, uh, but but there was that sort of recognition that you needed that that these sort of individual pieces of legislation were great but you needed more. You needed to somehow capture the whole picture of it. Well, and of course, the state was more or less exempt from the race and, yeah. <laughs> and sex discrimination legislation, which tells you about the change of mood, because what preceded it was a sense that, you know, the, 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 the private sector rightly needed taming from discrimination, but that the state was fundamentally, you know, benign. That was the the, the cultural presentation of society, and all of a sudden, you know, the state was was being quite draconian. And I think it took a while for people to catch on to that because the state was meant to be hands off and non interventionist. You know, because of course it was it was um, you know a, a, a libertarian conservative ideology being presented. So it was meant to be hands off. You know, that there'd been too much state control of the private sector, and the state was meant to be smaller now. And people, as the years went on people realized that it was getting bigger and bigger and you needed measures to counter that. So I think that was the national context in which, you know, rumblings about a, a Bill of Rights deficit began to, to catch on a bit. Uh, Charter 88, um, which came about in 1988, was, was crucial, I think, in all the constitutional reforms, you know, devolution, um, the freedom of information, and the Human Rights Act, as it eventually became called, becoming on the political agenda. It was never a populist movement. The popular element was, as we've described it now, that there was uh, some sections of society um, that go beyond you know, the liberal and legal elite who felt misgivings about the way the state was behaving. I shouldn't. I would, wouldn't want to overstate it at all. But then you had an organisation like Charter Eighty Eight, which was new and sort of captured that zeitgeist. And, quite and, where, and where did that come from? And, and who was behind it? Well, it was a bunch of, of of intellectuals. There's no getting away from that. So people like Stuart Weir and uh, Anthony Barnett. I mean, it's interesting writers, to remember. Authors. I mean, but well, you know, because we think back now on Charter Eighty Eight, and it's sort of, you know, it's this, this something that was a bit. It, it sort of went out with a whimper. It, there was certainly no bang. And um, But back then, in the late 80s and early 90s, 
it really was a kind of it was a rapier it was a kind of a it was a, ge- a genuine force and um and a, and a kind of intellectual force you know and it's interesting i mean to anticipate you know the real implication or the real consequence of the human rights act you know the the the, the human rights act is real punch is that the appropriate word i don't know but was proportionality that actually decision making had to become propor- proportionate people could hold decision makers account not just hold. unreasonable but yeah it had to be a, a proport and it's not just a balancing act it's a proportionate well thought through decision and i i genuinely i mean i remember people being angry about decisions that affected them that they felt they couldn't challenge. And so, you know, when we celebrate the Human Rights Act, we celebrate the fact that it's given us the confidence to to hold decision makers accountable. And that means that they have more respect. Everyone has more sort of, to use the you know language, everybody has more dignity. It, it kind of got rid of that kind of ghastliness that you just had to put up with it. And as a consequence of that, our health service is better, our, all of our public services have got better, but it's had a, an impact across the, the, the public and the private sector. Just going back to Charter 88 in that moment in 88, which is why it's called Charter 88, I was just going to bring in the international context, the European and international context, because of course, Charter 88 as a, as a, as a title, as a name, was, was mirroring itself on the movements in Eastern Europe, right? And um, was Charter 77, which was it? Charter 77 initially, and Sam's that the, Havel, the journal, ha- and Havel, exactly. So there was a mood which was basically about saying, which was using the concept of human rights explicitly, um, and saying that um, you know that there can be movements which are kind of a coming together, if you like, of an intellectual program mirroring the struggles on the street in the name of human rights and that was that that idea reaching people's brains and ears was really quite new in this country but that was the noises off and of course in 89 we had the fall of the berlin wall um and a sense that our time had come as as peoples believing in something called human rights i I don't know whether <laughs> whether the, the the program of a Bill of Rights, which eventually became called the Human Rights Act, would ever have taken off without that wider context. And of course, the Council of Europe, um, the European Court of Human Rights, the idea that, the, that all the former Eastern European countries should join the Council of Europe, you know, this became now a movement seen to be one of progress, seemed to be one of morality, and Britain was more outside it than in. And so it was almost like we needed to catch up. Now, I think it was the moment when people first began in this country to hear about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was already, what, 40 years old. You know, we were very outside, we were very isolated, very island mentality when it came to this whole movement. Suddenly, it was all around us, and, and there was a sense that we could be part of this. And that, I don't know whether it would ever have happened without that. And, and what, was there, was there a, in some way, an influence from Strasbourg, from the European Court of Human Rights? Because I'm just thinking about the 70s and 80s, where there were, not loads, but a number of quite important European Court of Human Rights decisions involving the UK. Well, Dudgeon was obviously one. Yeah. East African Asians, another. These really landmark decisions. Yeah, so so D- Dudgeon was... Did you want to talk well, about Dudgeon? Dudgeon was the case that, that required Northern Ireland to decriminalise homosexuality. Um, so, you know, an absolutely seminal case in the 
in this kind of canon of LGBT litigation, it was the first case to establish that LGBT people had you know, gay, lesbian, and trans people and bisexual people have human rights. Um, absolutely seminal case. But there were, you're, you're right, Adam, there were um, significant you know, and cases across the board at the European Court of Human Rights involving the United Kingdom. Um, so I think when you look at it, by the, by the mid-90s, the UK uniquely then in the Council of Europe had violated all of, had been found to violate virtually all the human rights in the convention, yeah. thus sort of establishing that there was something, you know, systemically wrong. There was a systemic problem. It wasn't just like a, you know, like in Italy, all the delay cases at the before, you know, getting to court. This was a, this was a systemic problem across the board that there wasn't really uh, an effective mechanism to guarantee human rights in the UK. And and the, the cases against the UK were very. Um, Significant cases. So there was um, Ireland, 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 Ireland versus, versus UK. UK. Exactly, Ireland yeah. versus and, and, UK, and that, and that was in the late seventies. And I mean, that, that was yeah. in the late seventies. That was one of the first cases. Absolutely. In, 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 was was it the first case? Um, no, I think the first case was was two was um, Cyprus and um, Greece. Well, for, uh, no, the website. Uh, Greece against the UK Greece involving Cyprus. Greece against the UK involving Cyprus. That's it. Yes. That's yeah. it. That's but, it. But, but, Ireland, well, it was but it was a very, yeah. Ireland, Ireland of the UK yeah. was the was the hooded man case yeah. about the the inhuman treatment that was being um, used by the um, British soldiers in Northern Ireland, um, hooding and stress techniques and that, and that sort of Which, of course, thing. years later, they then used in, in, in the Iraq war, as yes. if that case had never uh, been heard. Well, well, I mean, I, I acted in the Baha Musa inquiry and, and one of the most unbelievable um, things that came out of that was that the corporate memory in the military exactly. of the Ireland versus the UK case had gone. Yeah. So nobody knew about it. It wasn't, it wasn't that, it, that they had, well, I mean, they, they, it wasn't that they well, said, they, they whatever they said, about it yeah. wasn't part of the training. Mm. None, none of the law, exactly. senior lawyers remembered it. It had just disappeared. Absolutely. So they were doing it again. So despite, despite even Edward Heath making a commitment to ensure that this couldn't happen again. But the interesting thing about that case is those techniques, whenever you describe those techniques to anybody and you ask them, you know, are these lawful interrogation techniques, are these inhumanly degrading ter ter interrogation techniques, are these torture, um, everybody, uh, uh, just without, you know, everyone accepts that they are unlawful interrogation techniques, torture, uh, and human degrading treatment. And the, the extraordinary thing is, there wasn't the mechanism in the UK to, ha to have them challenged. Exactly. The only way in which they could have them challenged was by Ireland holding the UK accountable in the, in the European Court of Human Rights. And, you know, we all know that Ireland would not, want, would not have wanted to, to do that. And so that is the, the staggering thing. And you had... You know, cases across the board. Francesca's already referred to the East African Asian yeah, case. It's the other where, major, major case. Where, you know, these East African Asians were being shunted literally around the world. Well, they were uh, British citizens, and the, the, the minute they wanted, or British subjects, and the minute they wanted to claim their citizenship because they needed it, it was taken away from them. I mean, it was an absolute, in three days by a Labour government, legislation passed in three days by a Labour government, and the only way of challenging that, that was through the European Court of Human Rights. And so, you know, that court became a very sort of just, it was, if you, if you could manage to get there, you would almost certainly get your remedy. Mm. Uh, but the reality is it was only the lucky ones that got there. And, and, and the ones with money. 
because well, presumably or, or supported by or supported yeah. by by, by yeah. a very good organisation sure. that knew what they were doing. Yeah. Well, I was working at the Runnymede Trust in the early eighties, and of course, the East African case was you know absolutely em- emblematic to us of what was wrong with the, the British state in relation to race, and. The sense of that being, you know, something so far away, this European Court of Human Rights where justice was formed, but so dislocated from the British state, um, and that there was just no possibility of getting people interested. It was where my interest first rose about incorporating the European Convention came from that case working at the Runnymede Trust. But there was absolutely no salience for the idea. And that's why I go back to my point that without what was happening in Europe and internationally, this this movement for human rights that was starting to develop actually far wider than Europe, I don't know if we'd have ever had the Human Rights Act um, because these huge cases from the 70s, you know, just did not did not lead to any any serious campaign for change. Yeah. So, so how did it happen? Where, where, how did we get so from I there? So I think it was the combination of the, in, of the European and international climate together with the experience of the Thatcher government that we were describing. One of those rare moments in time when something was happening at home that, that, that then gave resonance to something that was happening internationally. Uh, and there, there was the shock of the, of the 92 election. Mm. Um, uh, and so this was when everybody thought Labour were going to romp home and but uh, uh, very interestingly and you know Francesca was f- you know far more involved than I was but there was that very interesting moment where John Smith the then leader of the Labour Party sort of acknowledged that even if they were if Labour was ever going to form a government again and they only got one term the thing that they needed to do was to to create a far more effective accountability of government whether central or local, and and therefore he sowed this, the, the the seeds that were to become the Human Rights Act, and there were, you know, and it, it isn't about individuals, but there were kind of smart people like Francesca who were kind of articulating all of this, and through the early, through the mid nineties, um, with her work at the democratic audit through Essex University, they started to have an evidence-based approach. So they would measure uh, the UK legal framework against the European Convention on Human Rights, and you would be able to see what was missing. Um, And then similarly, uh, before the international, uh, under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Francesca and others spearheaded a brilliant report at at the UN, and the UN was able to clearly show um, how the United Kingdom just did not guarantee, could not guarantee, um, accepted uncontroversial human rights, such as privacy rights, such as real free speech rights, such as protest rights, such as non-discrimination rights. And they were very, uh, and those reports were just, they were very clear that it's not just this sort of sense that we wanted more, but that actually Francesca, interestingly with, with Keir Starmer principally, but also Stuart Weir, in the Democratic Order, it's really well worth people going back and having a look at that because it clearly points out that actually the United Kingdom, the laws of the United Kingdom are insufficient to guarantee the, the panoply of human rights that the global community expects. I think we were able to demonstrate 
um, certainly for for the benefit of the policymakers advising the Labour opposition, who by then were starting to feel confident they were going to be in government. Um, so this, the, is this t- t- Tony Blair time, or is this before well, Tony Blair? Okay, so it, it no, this is. I mean, so John Smith. So if we go back to John Smith, okay. So if we go back to John Smith. He had been, of course, a constitutional. I mean, he was a lawyer. He he was in favour of devolution. He was one of the few people in the seventies who'd voted for devolution. Um, he had a, a bent of understanding constitutional law and uh, human rights. Um, so it was, uh, and and if without Charter eighty eight, and I do want to, to give Charter eighty eight that credit, I don't think the whole thing would have been on the agenda at all. And they persuaded him to make a very important speech where he committed. Um, to, I think he said, a Bill of Rights based on incorporation of the Convention. And by the way, in those days, the two terms were used synonymously all the time. I mean, had been for years, but were by then all the time. One minute, one minute, um, you know, a politician, a leading politician would be talking about a Bill of Rights. The next minute, they'd be talking about incorporation of the Convention. So there was an assumption that whatever else was in it, it was going to be primarily based on the convention because it made them feel better and safer because, of course, in theory, we were already signed up to it and committed to to complying with it. So they thought that would be more likely to be achievable than a whole new Bill of Rights. But no one had really thought through what it was going to mean, to be frank. So therefore, using the terms interchangeably, which is what would happen in those days without necessarily tying up all the the loose ends, was just very common. Uh, And I once did a, a, a search on that and it was quite quite extraordinary how much, I mean, including him within the Tory party as well, you know, the terms are just used, you know, without much thought. Um, But then, of course, he died very prematurely and very, very suddenly. And Tony Blair was left with this commitment, um, which he could have ditched. And actually, at that point, I was still at Liberty, I was working at Liberty. And I should just say that Liberty, after with with Charter 88 taking the lead, Liberty, there was then keen to kind of um, put its own imprint on the debate about constitutional reform, in particular the Bill of Rights aspect of it, um, because obviously that was Liberty's um, agenda. And uh, people like myself, John Wadham and uh, Madeleine Colvin drafted um, a, a model Bill of Rights called a People's, which we called a People's Charter after the Chartists' Charter, to give it a sense of roots in this country, but we based it entirely on universal human rights. And this is another aspect of this discussion, um, because there were various ways this debate could have gone, but within Liberty, people like John, me, Madeleine, and Andrew Pudifat, who was General Secretary of Liberty at the time, were very, very intent that this was... a moment of decision. Are we talking about national rights for, for, for British people or are we talking about bringing universal human rights, if you like, home to British people whilst acknowledging the roots of this all go right back to this soil? And we were very much on the latter side. So we drafted a Bill of Rights called the People's Charter, which was much, much wider than the European Convention, but which addressed the fundamental problem that the Labour Party were saying was the reason why they wouldn't adopt, sorry, why they wouldn't adopt the policy of a, of a Bill of Rights. So you had John Smith making this broad commitment that wasn't quite sure exactly what he was saying. And then, as so ha- often happens in politics, you know, the, the, the policy people around them, either within, within that political party or advising them from outside, then compete over making sense of it. And our contribution was, A, to try and root this commitment into universal human rights and not something that was purely national and for only for nationals, but also 
to answer the problem that Labour had always had with the idea of a Bill of Rights, which is why it had never been adopted by the Labour Party before when it had been as a policy, when it had been by the Lib Dems, which was the sense that you were going to take political decisions out of the political sphere. And that was their big worry, and you were going to judicialise politics. Uh, and that went very much against the grain of the Labour Party. And, um, and, and would it be fair to say that, the, that they would look at the very conservative with a small c judge and probably with a big c as well and think, well, maybe we're, we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot here by passing over social policy decisions to a bunch of old white conserv completely male conservatives. Completely right, Adam. Completely right. And of course, I've forgotten the name of the case now, Young, and there was another case from the early 80s. Um, which was the closed shop case, which I actually support the decision, but within the labour movement that went down like a like a piece of cold fish, um, because it, it it what was the name of the case? Oh dear, um, because it re reasserted the you know it it seemed to absolutely demonstrate that uh, didn't matter which judges where. You know, the point was it was saying that the they're, closed they're shop was a violation of, 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 of the Convention so of Article your, 11. Your, yeah. your right to join an, an association mm. also meant guaranteed your right not to join it. Absolutely. I think they were completely right. I think it was young and something. It was but, a sort um, of early compelled speech case, I guess. In a sense, in a sense, reverse. Yeah, and, and this just reinforced, you know, people didn't necessarily go into the details of it. It just reinforced the sense of what you just described. And so it actually gave human rights a very bad name on the left. So there was a big, you know, already existing reaction against the idea of a, a Bill of Rights of any kind, including based on universal principles, let alone one that would allow judges to overturn legislation. It was basically a no-no. And, and there was a history of, of on, on the Labour side, there was a history going back to the birth of the convention of scepticism uh, towards civil and political rights only. Yeah, I mean, they were worried about they were worried about the universal aspect. Frankly, Adam, they were worried about the rights this was going to give to you know people in the dominions, as they were then um, euphemistically called, uh, being able to come here and be able to assert their rights. And they were worried about you know white public school Oxford educated male judges having power. Back then, it was the age of deference, and they didn't want people to have rights. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. So Lord, well, Lord, Lord Jarrett, I've just got his quote, yeah. said in 1950, the, the real vice of the document consists in, it, in its lack of precision. It completely passes the wit of man to guess what results will be arrived at by a tribunal composed of elected persons who need not even be lawyers. And, that and, was and, one of his many. There were, there were others. And, there were and, worse and, things, I, I mean, say. I mean, that could, <laughs> that could come out of the voice of, uh, of yeah. Dominic Cummings. Absolutely. To, today, really. I mean, Absolutely. Sort of identical. Absolutely. And, and evidence and reality has proven them both to be wrong. And actually, they've been, you know, the, the European Convention on Human Rights has proven to be quite precise, quite clear, and quite um, 
forceful in, in its application. But bringing in liberty here, this is which where Jonathan and I both worked, but not not totally at the same time. Um, so at, in this slightly earlier period, in in the in the late eighty, very end of the eighties and early nineties, and particularly after John Smith made his commitment. Um, we had a particular role because Labour Party was comfortable with liberty because it came out, if you like, of um, Labour stalwarts and the Labour movement. And that, that was the kind of organisation it was seen, although it's always been non-political party, Labour felt more comfortable with it. And it was absolute, therefore they were prepared to work with us on trying to produce a model that would fulfil the, you know, would answer the concerns of the left and indeed right through the Labour Party about how you could have some sort of Bill of Rights that would address the kind of democratic deficit, if you like, that was became so obvious through the Thatcher years and yet would not empower the judiciary so as to stop a Labour, radical Labour government introducing, you know, implementing its programme. Now, that was quite a, a conundrum we were set and... Um, I personally then, um, because I was director of the Civil Liberties Trust, which was the research side of the organization, I then spent my days trying to answer that question and was then, then left Liberty, went to the democratic audit that Jonathan was describing before, and then spent a lot of time um, on work, doing this work that he was describing where we tried to show what the deficit was in our legal rights here, very, very crudely, that it, you know, the silence of the law being the source of most people's perceived rights, but when the law becomes quite noisy, you find that space shrinking and shrinking. So to demonstrate that, we did this audit, as Jonathan described, sitting here in Doughty Street Chambers, where I'm sitting with you today, looking at every single European Court of Human Rights case or European Commission on Human Rights case where the UK had been um, cited and looking at the reasoning of either why there was or there wasn't a permissible um, case and then w whether there was a violation found or not and tracing that back into our legislation or our policy to see where the vacuum was that we kept having these violations found uh, or cases at least declared admissible and um, by producing that then developing an index an audit on the basis of that and then using that to, to, to try to persuade the Labour Party that this really was a serious proposition to introduce a Bill of Rights to answer that problem but we were still left with the conundrum, how could they introduce it without empowering the judges beyond where Labour wanted to go? So how, how did you square that circle? Well, then I was very, very lucky um, to be appointed, um, and it really was just fortune and luck, um, at, at King's College Law School, a project set up by Professor Robert Blackburn. So you can see all these, you know, Jonathan, Keir, um, you know, John Wadham, myself, Madeleine Colvin, um, that's Keir, Keir, that's Keir Jonathan Starmer, Cooper who sat here. Jonathan Keir Cooper Starmer, who sat here. Keir who is Starmer. now you know, we Shadow all, uh, Brexit uh, Ben Secretary. Emerson. A whole bunch of us spent a lot of time discussing, thinking, working on this um, because it. You know, really, that's what happens when there's a moment when there's a zeitgeist. There will be all sorts of examples of that happening right now as we speak. You then get a group of people, mainly behind the scenes. You know. After work, a meeting, talking, talking, thinking, thinking, trying to work their way through all the, the various aspects of this. It was a truly Robert Hazel's constitution unit. It truly was a public law project and, and justice, Anne Owers, an amazing group project. 
Um, and it, but, but it had these two major elements. One is to demonstrate that there was something wrong with our system, which really wasn't easy when, there's, when the self-image is of, the, of this being the, the, the root, the mother of parliament and the mother of civil liberties. As Thatcher famously said when asked about why she didn't support um, incorporating the European Convention into our law, she said we already have the most freedom that any country could ever have, I'm paraphrasing. Um, and that really was the self-image. Um, so one was to demonstrate there was a need for it, and the second one was how to do it to a Labour government that didn't want to empower judges. They did seem quite severe obstacles at the time, I have to say, and they, they needed to be addressed. So the, 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 were you going to say something, Jonathan? Well, I was only going to just make that observation that if you look back then, so in the mid-late 90s or the mid-90s, and you look back on the violations of the European Convention on Human Rights found against the United Kingdom, over two-thirds of them had come from either primary or secondary legislation. Mm. So it's not just that, that the system as a whole is a, is a problem, Parliament is also a problem. That mm. Parliament was sort of was either consciously or unwittingly, but should have known what it was doing was was violating human rights. So Professor Robert Blackburn, who was also involved, then set up this project. He got funding from King's College Law School to have a project purely to look at models for incorporating the convention. We're now talking 1996, so we're getting very close to when New Labour comes into power, and it, it was pretty well clear they were going to. And they had this manifesto that, that Tony Blair was prepared to keep going, supporting, sometimes they used the phrase Bill of Rights, sometimes they used the phrase incorporating the European Convention. And I'm just going to digress for a second, but I remember my discussions with Tony Blair in those years. He was Shadow Home Secretary, then when Smith died, he became leader, of course, where he was honest that he had not supported the idea of a Bill of Rights. So this was coming from the right of the party, which just shows you how deep the scepticism <laughs> lay within Labour, and that he'd written against supporting a Bill of Rights in the past. And, and he was a lawyer. And he was a lawyer. And he was personally opposed in the past. Yep. And not for such dissimilar reasons as the left. There was tremendous scepticism about whether, A, it was needed, and B, whether it would then basically stymie a, a, a Labour uh, uh, government of any political complexion within it. Was, what, what was Tony Blair's particular issue? Well, it was about the courts being able to strike down legislation. Everyone saw the American model as what a Bill of Rights was. Um, and um, he just, he, he thought it was important that politics should take place with the political sphere. And that was the fascinating thing. So you had a more ideological version of that from the left of the party, but you also had that argument on the right of the party. John Smith was one of the very, very few, and he just so, he just so happened to be a leader at the point, the Charter 88, um, you know, was, was, was going up a gear. Um, if he hadn't been leader, I don't know if you would have been able to persuade the Labour Party to, to, to have a commitment to, to incorporation of the Convention or, or British Bill of Rights. But anyway, so that is why uh, King's College set up this project just to look at models for incorporating the Convention into UK law. I was very fortunate. I applied for the job. I got it. And then I spent my entire life, all day, every day, <laughs> reading um, different models for uh, Bills of Rights around the world, different debates about how to incorporate treaties. And eventually... Um, the idea of the Declaration of Incompatibility. I worked with 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 Rabinda Singh at Matrix and um, um, and uh, um, Murray Hunt at Matrix. You know, just just testing out these ideas with with practicing very eminent um, young barristers as they were then uh, as well. And um, this it seemed that this could work. 
Um, uh, I also remember when finally putting a sort of package together for how Section 3 and se what became Section 3 and Section 4 could interplay, going to... Um, See Lord, whose name has now just gone out of my head, who New Zealand judge, who Cook. Cook, who was wonderful. I spent an entire afternoon because in New Zealand, of course, um, they they were they were prevented from striking down legislation. Yeah. So New, New Zealand came came to the rescue. In a sense, but we didn't want to. We didn't want to imitate them because they basically no. didn't. Basically, when it came to primary legislation, the courts were based, were still out, were still prevented from considering the case at all. So what we were looking for, it very very crudely, was something between the Canadian model. Um, this is very very technical, and I won't go into it. But the, the, there was something between Canada and New Zealand, somewhere you know, in the middle of the Atlantic between Canada. But the and New genius Zealand, of Francesca, there were many people that were kind of warble on about the Canadian model and the New Zealand model, which lost everyone, so we mustn't Absolutely do it lost now. Every, exactly. And, well, we um, do that now with Brexit, but, don't we? But, 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 it's very Canada like or Norway. But, but, so exactly but, but, like but, that. But, 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 you know, Francesca was able to kind of express it in terms of the models that, that, that she was proposing, i.e. the Declaration of Incompatibility model and the obligation on public authorities to give effect to, to convention rights. Uh, and the genius of the Human Rights Act is its scheme, and it is down to that incredible work that Francesca did. And if I could just sort of make a contemporary point, if that's okay. You know, so by the time this was, uh, 97 happened, and therefore we were getting into the whole Human Rights Bill debate, and the government was introducing its, you know, its consultation documents around the Human Rights, what was to be the Human Rights Bill, and the Labour Party had already done that. Francesca had set out all these different options about what the implications of having the Human Rights Act would be. And if you compare that to what is going on around Brexit, it is extraordinary that there isn't the, hasn't been the equivalent of Francesca that would actually have been able to say to those people that were advocating for for Brexit, these are the different options and these are the strengths and weaknesses of all of them. So they could have come together with a unified response to it. And it do, it really does show why Brexit is such a disaster, because we haven't had that well thought through analysis and why these people think they can just assert Brexit without having any idea of its context. Whereas what Francesca did was for she she it meant that when labor genuinely adopted the scheme that was to become the human rights bill and then the human rights act that there was no scaring of the horses everything all the i's had been dotted all the t's had been crossed and everyone knew what we were getting and why we were getting it uh, and, and therefore it was addressing the two concerns that she she's already raised i.e um, why do we need this that had been established, and then how do we ensure that we have a, a, an effective human rights protection that doesn't become over, overly judicialized? So you have the extraordinary scheme of, uh, you know, Anthony Lester was involved in it too, and uh, you know they were extraordinary people like Lord Alexander of Weedon, that the, you know the, um, the also the Labour Attorney General at the time was a remarkable man. Um, he was sort of conscience of Tony Blair's government. Um, you know, they were, you know, everyone was involved and it genuinely became, because of the thorough nature of the research that Francesca had carried out, it genuinely became where it felt like it was a cross-party 
project. So it meant that when it went for, you know, it's to Parliament, it was sort of, you know, there were people involved in the fine detail, but it was virtually um, sort of not unopposed. I mean, there was this general consensus that it was a good thing and that the scheme of the of the bill was a very, very good scheme. Thanks to, and she can't say it for herself, <laughs> but thanks to Francesca. What your listeners will not be aware of, but you will, Adam, is that I've been trying to interrupt Jonathan for the last <laughs> several minutes to say that it's incredibly kind, but it genuinely was this group um, project in which, um, and uh, it, it, what, ha- but I'd never thought of it before as, as, a, as the contrast with what's happened with Brexit. Labour made it very clear that if they were going to actually put this in their manifesto and implement it, we had to sort this out. And when they came, that was before they were in power, so they produced this green paper before before they were elected, um, bringing rights home. Um, and then once they were in power, of course, we had to get it past the civil servants, and we had and did presentations to the civil servants. Um, Jack Straw was Home Secretary by then. He had also been a lawyer. He did take a particular interest in this. I think the Green Paper was signed by Jack Straw. Was yes, correct. By, by and Jack Straw. and Paul Botang as Shadow Attorney General. And then when they became, it meant what what Jack Straw always said, and I think he wrote it in his in his book Last Man Standing, whatever it's called. Of course, many things happened after this that means that when you hear me describe this, you, you're you thinking about it post Iraq war, post the many things that happened, which um, then put a whole different light on the Human Rights Act. But if you, for a minute, can imagine living through 1996 and 1997 without knowing what was to come, uh, what Jack Straw used to say then is, I have cufflinks on my right hand, cufflinks on my left. My right hand may do all sorts of things that quite draconian things as a Home Secretary, but my left hand, Cufflink, wants to make sure that I'm still accountable and held to account. And that is why I support the Human Rights Act. He took it very seriously. They had away days, his Home Affairs team, just looking at the model. Um, His um, special advisor became very involved in it, in in, in challenging us and discussing it with us too. But the really important thing he he told me personally and he wrote uh, in his memoirs was that it was ready to go so that at the very, very first uh, cabinet after they were elected, he was able to say, we can incorporate the European Convention on Human Rights because we're ready to go. Uh, with the policy and we and so it was one of the first things off the tracks and freedom of information unfortunately then was a bit slower because of that because it wasn't quite ready to go and 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 so I just want to ask you about just to go back slightly what was the moment when you knew that it was going to be labor policy how did that how did that happen well Stuart Weir, Andrew Puddyfat and myself set up something called the Labour Campaign for Rights. It's one of those things, Adam, where if you're completely focused on something that you want to make happen, Extinction Rebellion now, you just, what you find is that there are you know, Jonathan, Jonathan been talking about me. I should talk about Jonathan's involvement, which is absolutely crucial. What you find is that a whole group of people will build on each other's strengths uh, and not compete with each other and work to this common goal until it is achieved. And as I say, it's what we would talk about after work, on the weekends, in the pub. You know, it was, it became one's life. Um, we were determined. We saw this moment and we knew that if we didn't do it and we weren't ready, this moment would never come again. We knew it. 
And I think that that was true. I was, we, I mean, Andrew Puddyfat as director of uh, general secretary, as they were called then, of um, Liberty, for example, um, did try to make this not such an elite project and set up this constitutional convention with all the NGOs, with, with Stonewall and Runnymede and Operation Black Vote and Fawcett, all producing pamphlets about how a Bill of Rights would help them based on the European Convention would help them. So there was an attempt to move it from this small group. But without this small group, I have to say, I don't think it would have happened. So you felt uncomfortable because you knew that this was a project that's meant to be for, you know, for every human being, for the most dispossessed human beings in the country. And yet you were working behind the scenes. This made me very uncomfortable. And I, I, I do want to say something else. I am not a lawyer. I am not a practicing lawyer and I'm not a qualified lawyer. That gave me certain advantages because it meant that I could think outside the box. That's what, that's what the lawyers kept telling me. At the same time, I became a legal academic um, so that I had, I had to have a very fast self-education in the law. Um, I had friends like Keir Starmer who spent a great deal of energy helping me get up to speed so that I could then, you know, read legal cases, understand how to read them, understand what it meant and, and apply and apply my reading of them. So, you know, it, there was a lot of mutual support. It was an extraordinary time. It was a moment when NGOs were not competing with each other, but we were working together. When individuals were doing likewise, when people didn't care whether people were lawyers or barristers or academics. We just worked together to achieve it. Um, we knew we were going to get it as policy, I think, by 1990, you know, that it was going to make it into the manifesto by 1996 when J Jack Straw and Paul Botang produced the Green Paper. Uh, we didn't know that it would then become law because, you know, what, what are, have you ever heard of the fact that political parties produce manifestos and they don't all, all the policies don't see the light of day? So on the, well, we haven't had a landslide like 97. No, so, absolutely. But they still were choosing from that manifesto. So right on the day of the first cabinet, I, I had the privilege of being rung at home about some of the detail of it. You know, it really was down to that wire and then was rung after to say, yes, they've, they've, they've agreed it's going there's going to be a bill and it came off the tracks very very soon afterwards but to, to fast forward after it was introduced in 1998 and i have to say the the debates were some of them were really fantastic particularly in the house of lords it was serious intelligent debate um and you know to, to give him credit jeremy corbyn was one of the few mps that i remember because jack straw gave me tickets so I, I sat through the entire debate in the commons and the lords he was one of the few backbench mps who sat there through those debates um, and was very much in favor um, of the Human Rights Act. So, you know, the, the, it, it did become something that the Labour, Labour government and the Labour Party owned. Although so, so, what, so that's it's interesting because the scepticism that came off uh, from the left of the party towards, towards the convention, as you described it, that wasn't, in your experience, shared at the time by the left of the well, party. Well, there were still elements. The left of the party was certainly very sceptical. But because of the Declaration of Incompatibility model, because of Section yeah. 3 and Section can you just, 4... Can you just explain that in, in, in very brief layman terms about what's the difference between the US Constitution where the, where the court and, and, and a lot of constitutions where the courts can, the Supreme Court usually can, disapply... Strike laws down. of parliament mm. and, and even strike in them Canada, down which is but, a, but we can't under the human rights act we can't do that and how does it what can we do instead right so the the issue was that of course there were plenty of 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 
lawyers and very eminent legal minds who were very appalled that some of us who were in favor of this policy were also calling for a model where the courts couldn't strike down legislation. This caused, you know, this was probably the only issue that caused tension um, between uh, our, between people. I mean, uh, it caused tension between Francesca and I because I, I kind of thought that, it. that I thought it was absurd to have this, <laughs> this the Bill of Rights that you you know what's the point of it if all it can if it can't disapply legislation you know and I suppose you know I was probably coming at it very much from that kind of you know that community that I belong to you know the, the LGBT community where legislation had been the main tool of oppression against us and so the idea that somehow you couldn't disapply it seemed to me just well what was the point of it but the genius of the of the scheme is it of course it, it does work so, so let, let, let's let's so, talk about so, what it did so what it does is which was sort of taken from the canadian model i think was um to require in section three that the courts interpret legislation compatibly with the rights in the european convention uh, where possible uh, and that that has allowed um say, for example in the case of gaydon um the, the courts to reinterpret legislation where it would not then overturn the very purpose or fundamental meaning of, of, of statute to like, do like, so. Like the Supreme Court did it a couple of days ago in the case about a judge, oh, ca yes. county court judge who was Absolutely. a whistleblower and wasn't um, technically wasn't technically protected by the Employment Rights Act. And they said, actually, we're going to interpret this in line with the European Convention and Article 14 right not to be discriminated against. And we're going to allow, we're going to interpret it as if this judge is a worker and is protected by anti-whistleblowing by whistleblowing legislation. So that's a perfect it, and, and that's, example. And that's happened about, you and know, that's quite happened. regularly. And that in itself is is a cause of concern for for those who think that uh, the courts should not be should not have that power. And they certainly didn't before. They couldn't go anywhere near doing that before. Um, they had to, you know, try and work out what was intended by legislation by looking at what was said in, you know, they were even forbidden for looking sometimes at what was said in Parliament. That was as much of the debate before the Human Rights Act was whether they were entitled to look at what was said in Parliament to work out what was intended. Usually, the, the orthodox position was that the plain meaning of words should determine what a legislation means. Sorry. Um, so, but then, of course, there will be times when you cannot strain the meaning of legislation to reinterpret it. And in New Zealand, that's really where the cases ended. And my conversation with Lord Cook was about me go, saying to him when I'd looked at, at all the models that I, I could lay my hands on for bills of rights around the world or for incorporating human rights treaties, was, well, what, a, what, what would it have been like, Lord Cook, if actually you could still have considered um, a primary piece of legislation, the one I was thinking about, as it so happened, was about prisoners' voting rights, where there'd been a case in New Zealand, I don't remember the name of the case anymore, and the, basically the courts were unable to consider the case because it was open and shut that legislation deprived prison, all prisoners of, of the vote in New Zealand at the time. And I said, well, what if, what if you had been able to consider the case, take the case as if you had had a strike down power, but you... Um, didn't actually have a strike down power, but could declare that from the point of view of the law, that this breached the, the principles in your Bill of Rights, would that have made a difference? And he said, 
it would have made a substantial difference. And that is basically what Article 4, uh, sorry, Section 4 um, of the Human Rights Act allows our courts to do. Before the Human Rights Act, you know, if, if, if something was determined by primary legislation, it was out of bounds. It was constitutionally prohibited for our courts to consider whether that legislation was in breach of anything, because by definition, it was the law. The law was whatever whatever um, Parliament had most recently passed. Uh, this was to turn a constitutional principle on its head, but not allow the courts to actually strike down the primary legislation, but to to, to pass the ball back to Parliament to decide whether to change a primary legislation on the basis of that declaration. Now, I remember Lord, Lord Irving, who was the Lord Chancellor of the time, saying, oh, there'll hardly be any uh, section, uh, section 4 cases. It's a very minor part of the, um, of, of, of the act, of the bill, as it was then. Um, but actually, there's been about two, two, two a year, I think, on average, since the human, 20 years since the Human Rights Act was passed, because it didn't come into force until 2000, so it's a little under 20 years. Um, and I think it has made a significant difference. But above all, it has meant that when it is said that um, the courts now determine our law and that uh, parliamentary sovereignty has been overturned, it's simply untrue. Um, so I just want to round up. I mean, we, I think we could do a whole other podcast about what the Human Rights Act actually did, um, which is a whole other conversation. But I want to ask you about going forward, because we, as, as we sit here, Brexit may or may not happen in the next few days, um, although this episode is going to come out a, a little bit later, so who knows? Maybe we'll be in the, in the midst of civil unrest or some godforsaken thing <laughs> at the time. But the, 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 there is another moment, I think, coming where there could be a constitutional um, change or, or development, or there could not be, but we're losing the EU, probably losing the EU structures, we're probably going to have some sort of enhanced devolution at, at some point. And this is a, a con certainly could be a constitutional moment. Do you think there's any, do you think there's a case for changing the Human Rights Act, a Bill of Rights, or should we stick rather than risking the, the twist? This is a big conversation because the, the well, headline... Let's, let's try and have the big conversation in a couple of minutes. This, the headline <laughs> of this question really is, you know, is... Is there any analogy between the counter-reaction to the Human Rights Act that followed after the years that we've been talking about now and what's going on uh, with Brexit? And my answer is absolutely. And what happened with the Human Rights Act and the way that it became depopularized, if I can put it like that, um, was, if you like, a dress rehearsal for what's happened over Brexit but for not dissimilar reasons. Um, now, it's absolutely true that if the Human Rights Act hadn't been um, introduced just nine months before, uh, came into effect, I should say, just nine months before 9-11, you may not have had the immediate counter-reaction by the Labour, then Labour government against it, which was on very, very specific grounds. Because, because it, it never had time to bed It in. never had time to bed, bed had, down. It, it, and the Belmarsh was, case, yeah. which declared that... Um, About detention without detention trial. Detention without trial. It's, it's, of terrorist suspects. Of terror yeah. suspects was, was a, a breach of the Human Rights Act, and that went all the way to Strasbourg, and they confirmed that. You know, that turned the Labour government against the Human Rights Act, and they, 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 they clearly regretted ever having introduced it, although they never explicitly said that. 
But this opened the door for a far greater, what I would call, culture wars against the Human Rights Act, um, in which ostensibly um, there was an alternative being proposed, uh, not not entirely only by the Conservative Party and uh, subsequent government, um, but mainly coming from that um, political uh, quarter, suggesting that rather than have uh, the Human Rights Act, which after all really is just a foreign treaty implemented by foreign judges, which our courts now are bound to follow, rather than have that, we could have our own British Bill of Rights rooted in our soil, so that you you started to have this sort of competition, which would be better, which would be worse. The way I saw it from, I have to say, day one, was that this was the um, nationalisation um, of our of our rights, um, not in order to make human rights more popular, but to make them non-universal, uh, and that it was seen as an affront to uh, British tradition to have a universal human rights treaty within our law taking precedence over our law, even with the constitutional constitutional restrictions that we've just been discussing uh, through Section 4. Um, in other words, there was a sense in which the nativism and nationalism that I believe we've seen played out through Brexit um, was being, if you like, rehearsed through the debate over the, the future of the Human Rights Act. It, what much of many lawyers got sidetracked into a discussion. Well, would we have more rights maybe if we had a British Bill of Rights? I personally never thought that was the point. I thought there was something fundamentally concerning to say the only way we can have something called a British Bill of Rights, which, as I've said to you, the Human Rights Act in the early days was interchangeably called anyway, uh, and perceived as being, the only way we could have a British Bill of Rights is on the back of repealing uh, a human rights treaty which incorporated a universal human rights instrument was a statement way beyond the legal provisions of, of the two measures. Um, to me, the essential part of the human rights side is its scheme you know, Francesca's just taught, explained how declarations of incompatibility work. There's also that obligation under Section 3 that all law must be interpreted so far as it's possible to do so compatibly with convention rights and the obligation in Section 6 for all public authorities to act compatibly with convention rights. So for me, it's the scheme that is key. And we do have Francesca to, to thank for that scheme. And the rights that we get, as, you, as we all know or, or as people are familiar with, are those rights that come from the European Convention on human rights that are scheduled um, in Schedule 1 to, to the back of the Act. And at one moment, I had a kind of crisis of confidence where I said, well, does it matter where our rights come from as long as we keep the scheme? To me, this, the key thing was the scheme, and my concern was the watering down of the scheme. I no longer would that obligation in Section 3 be so far as possible to do so, to interpret uh, all law compatibly with convention rights, but it would just be one factor to be taken into account. That, to me, was a major problem. Um, so... I was, I did have a moment of, of a wobble, I think it's fair to say, where I thought that you could just replace the schedule of acts, uh, of rights um, contained in the Human Rights Act. But I have recanted, I have put my hand in the flames. But, but that was in a, a quite a different context. I mean, that was in the time when this sort of Bill of Rights um, discussion, this is pre-Brexit, when that whole issue was being uh, was being decided. It's true, but I think it was addressed for her, so I think Jonathan's uh, uh, kind of 
See yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, and actually, the the point is, I mean, I don't think I can be as sort of, um, you know, thoughtful as Francesca about this. I just think, you know, what's wrong with the European Convention? It's a really good global human rights treaty, and of course, it should form the basis of of our rights. And there's not a, I mean. I'm sure we could say there are better versions than this and this and this and this and this. But actually, it's a good thing. And we have our relationship with it. We have our ancient or historic relationship with it. We have our ongoing relationship with it. It's, it's, of course, it's the sensible thing to, for, to be the, the basis of our rights. So I would leave the Human Rights Act as it is. I think if we're looking at the future, we should be looking actually at being... Um, uh, where there are gaps in relation to other rights, we do need to uh, really get our act together over having more effective and enforceable economic and social rights. You know, our system does okay with it. Proportionality has made a big impact on all of that. So it's that we do okay, but we need better economic and social rights. I can see a lot of arguments to have a, you know, a, a sister act of the Human Rights Act on economic and social rights. Personally, I think that we need to go a bit further than that. Now people think of me as some sort of tree-hugging person, but I think we, we need to better protect the rights of sentient beings. I think we don't do that adequately, and I think that's another mission that we need to address. But I, I, I think when we're going, you know, we have a very good settlement on human rights protection that fits neatly and sensitively within our to all intents and purposes, common law system of government. And should there be a big constitutional review, should we decide that we need a UK constitution? And of course, Adam, you've written very thoughtfully about all of this, and you've really, you're really setting the scene for all of, of that debate. Uh, but should, there, should we have a, a, a call for a UK constitution? I wouldn't unsettle the Human Rights Act scheme is part of that. I think it should stay as it is, and the European Convention on Human Rights should stay as our source of rights. I mean, in the end, all bills of rights have a symbolic role as well. And there's no question there's been a culture wars over the Human Rights Act, which goes way beyond the substantive nature of it. When we had a chance to see what this British Bill of Rights would look like through the discussion paper produced by Chris Grayling when he was uh, Justice Secretary under David Cameron. We got an inkling into the nature of these cultures, culture war. Um, it was not a document rooted in universal human rights principles. It was a document which was aimed at uh, narrowing down the scope of rights, who they apply to, and to eliminate what he called trivial issues, which meant, the, ironically, the very way in which the human rights has come to have some meaning to people in their everyday lives by a whole range of cases we've seen in recent times, they were the ones that they wanted to remove so that you would return to the idea that human rights really is not a term that has meaning in this country. We have civil liberties. We don't, we, we need them when we're up against, you know, things like torture. The British state doesn't torture people rooted in the UK, but we don't worry about what happens when soldiers go abroad. We don't worry. To, to gay people. 
or to gay people. I mean, this is the argument Jonathan Sumption has made in, in the retail. Absolutely. It's exactly the argument. Absolutely. And, and Donald I'm happy Trump, with those robust si- traditional civil liberties, but don't talk to me about personal autonomy or these kind of... Exactly. Uh, in the home Privacy, rights. home. Yeah. Pinker, all of this rights. is... It, yeah, I wouldn't exactly. put it like that, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And Donald Trump is doing exactly the same thing. His administration has set yeah, up I mean, a commission they, on a commission, unalienable rights to go back to what civil liberties yep. used to be, where you keep gun control and you keep capital punishment, but you lose all this global, globalized version yeah. of, of rights. And that that culture war is about to heat up if Brexit happens. Can Dominic just... Cummings, just to say, Dominic Cummings, as you know, Adam, has written that after breakfast, we're after Brexit, <laughs> we're after Hopefully Brexit, after breakfast, breakfast as well. lunch and supper, yeah. we're coming for the European Convention on Human Rights referendum and we'll win that by more than 52 to 48. Yeah. People need to understand that, it, that Human Rights Act may have survived 20 years, but we have a very big fight on our hands if we want it to last another 20. Yeah, it's, 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 on, the, it's on the agenda. Uh, and the other important thing to always remember is that um, once you've had these decisions and once these rights have been recognised as a consequence of some of these cases, that people then wonder what the fuss was all about. And it is interesting when you ask conservative or any antagonist of the of the human rights set, which cases of the European Convention on Human Rights or the Human Rights Act do you think were wrongly decided? And they really, really can't come up with any. And it is interesting if you look at the the response of the Ministry of Defence to the issues that came up around the Iraq war and, and Afghanistan and the cases there. You know, I don't think anybody would doubt now that people in the situation where um, as a result of border controls and uh, you know crossfire where innocent civilians are killed that there should be some form of independent investigation in that context nobody would dispute that now as it happens the, the british chose to take litigation through the courts and for the courts ultimately the european court of human rights ultimately to decide that under those circumstances there should be an, a, an effective investigation but nobody would really challenge that Nobody in this country would challenge the fact that they were where 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 crossfire at a at a crossing that ends up killing civilians shouldn't be investigated. Nobody would dispute that. Uh, and so it is interesting when you look at it that actually most of these cases, the UK people in the UK would just say, actually, that is the right outcome. And it's a good thing the cases were brought and actually we're a better society because the cases were were brought and it, those violations were clearly established. I, I, I'm, we're going to have to wind up. I could literally go on all night. Well, Francesca um, has to have the last Fra- word. Francesca is going to have the last Good. word. Um, I think that what we're starting to see is that people in their ordinary everyday lives are appreciating what having a Bill of Rights called the Human Rights Act is meaning, whether it's extending abortion, to Northern Ireland or civil partnerships to everybody or having offences that you committed when you were 18 now being allowed to be spent fully, people have suddenly started to use the phrase human rights and apply the act. It could certainly be built on. We could certainly extend it. But it's taken 20 years for people to understand that the Human Rights Act means that every human being now can claim their fundamental entitlements 
uh, in our society, which 20 odd years ago just wasn't possible. Can I just say, just so in case you want to add it, that the, uh, the uh, I think it was the launch of the act, it was at Church House. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it was the launch of the act, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And there were, the Archbishop of Canterbury was there, and it was this incredibly anticlimactic event. It was so, so sort of disappointing. But for some reason, they got it sponsored by a photocopying company. I have no <laughs> idea why. And so in the middle of all of this, you've got this advert for photocopiers. Do you remember <laughs> that? And so, and so we were all just like, what is going on? And so, you know, the Human Rights Act brought to you by <laughs> Canon photocopiers. Well, well maybe there's, a, there's an implicit point there that it was focused on, they expected a lot of lawyers. And they thought that that would be a good place. Anyway, thank uh, you. It was so, very funny. Thank you so much to both of you. Um, Francesca Clerg, Jonathan Cooper. I think this has been a, a brilliant discussion. I'd love to do a, a follow-up where we talk about all of the things we, that the Human Rights Act has done. But thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Adam. Thank you very much to Professor Francesca Clug and Jonathan Cooper. I thought that was an absolutely fascinating discussion. And I will remind you that the Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. Applications are now open for the next year's course. To learn more, please visit gold.ac.uk forward slash law. If you want to get in touch with the podcast with comments or suggestions, then email adam at betterhumanpodcast.com. Connect on Twitter, behumanpodcast. That's the letter B. And if you find this podcast interesting and informative, then please consider supporting patreon.com forward slash better human. That's our Patreon. If people give $3 a month, that's just over £2, that would be incredibly useful in making sure this podcast can continue. Thanks very much to Natasha Holcroft Ames, who is my researcher for the podcast, and Sammy Brow, who is the editor. I've been Adam Wagner. This has been the Better Human Podcast. See you next time.